0: Forbes magazine stated in a 2016 article that one thing, there's one thing that possesses the power to cause a complete mental turnaround. They said this one thing sparks curiosity and curiosity creates ideas and ideas leads to innovation. What was this one powerful thing? It was the power of a question. It's a question. The one who asks the question possesses the power for complete mental turnaround. Today, we see this exact interplay between our Lord and a lawyer. Jesus Christ, within the Gospel of Luke, is not only asked a powerful question, but I would say here today before all of you that it's probably one of the most important questions any person alive could possibly ask ask. Now, before we go over the question, I just want to take a moment to at least dialogue because if you had a chance to talk or to ask Jesus as this lawyer did anything in the world, what might it be? Is it simply, who's going to win the Super Bowl? Or is it, why do cows graze north and south only? Did you know that? When they eat, they only face north or south? (laughs) Who wants to ask Jesus that now? I do. They won't face east or west, north or south only. <laughs> Freaky little cows. I don't get it. But I'm assuming men, many want to ask things along the lines of, "Excuse me, Jesus, where do you stand on homosexuality? Excuse me, Jesus, where do you stand on things like abortion and etc." See, all of those are very solid questions. All of those are very powerful questions. But I think this lawyer that we are going to read today takes the cake. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, and here it is, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. What do I got to do to get into heaven? Cough it up, Jesus. Don't we all want to know this? If there's any, at least unchristian here today, aren't you at least curious? Because however Christ answers this question, we all need to leave immediately this place right now and make sure we go and do that. We need to check that box immediately to whatever Jesus' answer is and then we need to get on with our life. So let's see what this all important question, or excuse me, answer is to this question. Look at verse twenty-six. And Jesus, he said to him, well, "You're the expert. What is written in the law? How do you read it?" Mm, tricky Jesus, huh? How do you read it? So let's get the full picture here. We cannot merely think that this lawyer that we have before us today is like John Mulroney. John Mulroney. See, we can't think he's like that type of lawyer. We can't think he's like my cousin Vinny type of a lawyer. Okay lawyers then were advocates for the law, just like John Mulraney here is today. But what makes them different from our lawyers, it was that very law that they were advocating for was the law of God. So this lawyer is more like a theologian. He's a brilliant seminary professor. He's a biblical scholar type. So basically Jesus puts the ball back in his court and he says, "No, no, 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 you tell me Dr. Bible Thumper, how does one get eternity? Verse 27, and he answered, this being the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live freaking out right now? Do you know what this is? Do you know what this means? Holy smokes. The, 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 Jesus just gave us the golden key to eternity's gate. All of us simply love God and love other people. Boom, shakalaka. Are you kidding me? Let's, let's, let's pray. Go home, mow your neighbor's lawn, and enjoy heaven. Right? I mean, exa- that's, this probably exactly how I would, have, I would have handled it. Thanks, Jesus. I would have just taken off. But let's read how this lawyer, you know, basically skips home happy and lives forever. Look at verse 29. He's going to be so pumped. He's going to leave. But he, oh no, desiring to justify himself, oh, said to Jesus, well, well, and who is my neighbor? Oh, and who is my neighbor? Friends, something is off with these questions, with this boxing match of questions. There's something off. This lawyer is smarter than than that. So you see, he wants a legal definition. He's like all of us. We live in a time, we live in a culture, we live in a country where we desire to define every little thing. Let's DTR that. Let's DTR our food. Let's DTR our Netflix. Let's DTR that couple. Like everything needs to be defined. We have to label everything. It's either this or it's either that. There is no middle with us. The color gray does not exist within our little world. And we do that with our politics, and we do that with our careers, we do that with our theology, and we so badly want to do that with our faith. God, am I supposed to do this or that? God, can you just tell me what lesson I'm supposed to learn in this hardship? God, can you just tell me how to get to paradise and get past this whole serving you life discipleship thing so for this lawyer he wants boundaries who is my neighbor but in order to answer that question jesus decides to tell a story but not just any story he tells probably the one of the most famous parables ever told and there's so much we could that we could do a thousand sermons on this parable it's so rich. But this parable, I mean, this, if he was Spielberg, this would be his jaws. Like this is how big this parable is. It's his blockbuster. And this parable is known as the Good Samaritan. A sure guarantee that everyone in this room has probably heard it at some point or another. Now, if you'll allow me, I want to read almost all of it. Because it has to be read this way in order to get its fullest of impact, okay? So starting in verse 30, we're going to read a handful of verses. Bear with me. It's chunky, but we can do it. We're adults. Verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jerusalem, to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he, what? Had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wombs, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved, proved, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Did you notice the subtle shift in what Jesus did? Anybody pick up on it? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? What Jesus does is skew it ever so slightly and undermines the lawyer's entire theology and his entire worldview by asking what is truly the more powerful of questions. Jesus asks and points out, to whom must I be a neighbor? The question is no longer, who is my neighbor? It must now become, how do I become a neighbor? How do I become a neighbor? That's a question that causes complete mental turnaround. This changes everything for the lawyer then, and I would say for each and every one of us, including me in this room. Like Lorenzo said, four weeks ago, we started a short series on the image of God, one of the most crucial and fundamental doctrines within all of the Bibles that you were holding. And we took time to lift high that doctrine in both the area of of diversity and racism. We took time to lift it high in, in abortion and the unborn. Each similar in that the doctrine of the image of God as it very, at its very essence is about how the person, no matter who they are, African American to an unborn baby, no matter who they are, possesses intrinsic dignity, value, and lovability. This morning, as we've said so clearly, while we have chrysalis here, so on and so forth, we're going to wrap this up by talking, by facing the needy. Those in need, the poor, And we seek to do, as theologian Marvadon has said, the sense of being made in God's image calls us, calls us all constantly to look for in others. We thereby carry to others the answer to their inmost longing, a yearning for union with the Trinity, a thirst to respond with adoration to the God who made them. So church, disciple-makers... What is the relationship between the poor and our faith? What is the relationship? Is there a relationship between the poor and our faith? Well, it should strike us all very deeply that Jesus tells a story about a man who was in need, distressed, and impoverished to answer the question regarding life and eternity. That should strike us as odd. There is something so intertwined with the poor and our faith that it speaks to our destiny. Theologian and, and possibly one of the most brilliant American minds of all time, Jonathan Edwards, says this. He's, he's, he's not afraid to speak his mind. He says, There is nothing, nothing, nothing clearer in the Bible than our duty for the poor. Then what does he say? It is our highest duty. There is nothing clearer. So if you have a Bible, do me a favor. I'm gonna have you turn a couple books to the left. Crazy, right? I know. We're going to turn to the left to the Gospel of Matthew. You have a phone, it's going to be very easy if you have a phone. I want to read something from Matthew chapter 4 that should rattle us all in our understanding of the poor. Matthew chapter 4. This is so epic. Matthew chapter 4 starting in verse 23. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Well, who were these people? So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains and opposed by, or excuse me, oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Dioc- Dioclops, Diocl- uh, Diocl- uh, which isn't crazy because that means like 10 cities. So this is an insane amount of people, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So why do I bring that up? Because I want to show us that there is a massive crowd that Jesus is about to speak to who is not Jewish with Jewish, who is not religious with religious, who is not holy with holy, who is not clean with clean. Frankly, it's an uncomfortable mess. There's a lot of tension. No one wants to touch the other person. It's like a comic con. You know what I'm saying? It's like sweaty and it's gross. No. Everybody smells like B.O. For a good visual of the crowd, envision diversity in age, in color, religion, and economic status. And Jesus has these crowds of people sit down and he decides to address them. And he decides to speak to them. What could Jesus in this moment with such a diverse group of people desire to say? What could be Important in that moment to tell all of these people who are curious about Jesus, about God, about the kingdom of God. Well, verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 3, he tells us as a hush falls upon the entire crowd, Jesus lifts his voice, and the very first words out of his mouth is this Blessed are the poor. I had a cheesy illustration about questions. Jesus stands up and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor. This is the equivalent of a trusted leader stamping up in a democratic rally and saying, blessed are the Republicans. Blessed are the poor. Now a couple of misapplications of this text. One is, it's been taught as this is a commendation of poverty. Everybody be poor. No. That's entirely wrong. The Bible nowhere teaches that poverty is a good thing. There's no merit or advantage in being poor. Poverty does not guarantee a super level of spirituality that others may not be able to attain if they had much. And second... Please don't think that Jesus is defining poor in spirit, 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 as merely meek and mild, you know, soft little lambs listening to Enya. You know, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Poor in spirit is not a cheap form of yoga, okay? So that's not what he's getting at. Luke 6, Jesus' sermon on the plain, when he gave the speech again, said this, and it's a little bit starker. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed What? Blessed are you who are poor, full stop. Where's the spirit part? You know, the dream catchers and crystals part. No. Blessed are the poor, full stop, for yours is the kingdom of God. So it's beyond the spiritual, but not less than spiritual. This phrase, poor in spirit, to all who would have heard it, now get this this is what they would have heard. As Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor, what they would have heard in that day is this Blessed are the losers. They would have heard, blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are the empty. They would have heard, blessed are the pathetic. Blessed are the freaks, the marginalized, the needy, the weird, the helpless. That's what they would have heard. Now, who does that sound like? That list of people, that sounds awful like this a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. That's who it sounds like. See, no doubt, guaranteed, as Jesus is saying these words, jaws were hitting the grass, the floor. When Jesus spoke these words at the Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't shocking because he's talking about a certain class of people. What's shocking, why jaws are falling is because he calls them what? Blessed. Those people are blessed. I like the way Frederick Buechner describes blessed. He describes it as, I am with you. He describes blessed as, I am on your side. So think of Jesus saying it this, more like this. Fortunate are the losers because God is with you. Isn't this, in my opinion, the nature of, of what the Good Samaritan parable is, a withness. It's a withness, a standing in solidarity with the needy, a, a being on the side of the bankrupt, the empty, the helpless. Actually, it's painted so vividly in the Good Samaritan that Jesus chose to use two examples of people who chose not to be with the needy. Luke 10, chapter 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a levite. A levite it's like a like a junior priest. Surely these priests/pastors can't help because they're on their way to worship God. Right? They can't touch a poor man that due to religious, you know, rituals. They don't know who he is. Someone else will come along. These pastors, these religious, these spiritual people, he's dirty. We have a schedule to keep and and maybe even these priests' thoughts in their mind that possibly he could have deserved it. He may have gotten in people's way. Our hearts are so good at, at least I know mine is, perfectly setting in place like these self-justification blocks. Even beyond helping the needy, why aren't, the answer to why aren't we doing something, at least in my heart, I don't want to put this on anybody, but there's these self-justification blocks of why I can't be a part of a church or why discipleship group isn't, I don't have time for it or why I'm being fed more over here or why it's not a good time to give or whatever it is that has to do with our discipleship. Fortunate are the empty because God is with them. For many in this room, assuming the unbeliever falls in this camp None of this computes, right? This doesn't make a lick of sense. Think about it. This does not make any sense. Because if there is a God, if there is a God, if there is a God, he is on the side of those who are where? Well, in Bel-Air. If there's a God, he's with those in Beverly Hills. Not with those on Venice Boardwalk. If there is a God, he's, he's, he's the top floor type God. He's not down in the janitor's closet. God is with those who have favor. Those who have it all. Those who got the deal. God is with those who got the part. The God of the Bible is God, again, who is with those who have a lot. And spiritually, God is for, this is what we do as well, God is for who? Well, the pure, the clean, the faithful. The Christians with the really, 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 really thick, you know, brown leather Bibles and it's all tattered on the edge and they carry a highlighter. Whoa, God is with you, brother. But if that's true, what does that say? If that's true, what does that mean? What does that say? It says this, that God is for those who can earn it. If that's true, it's saying that God is for those who can earn it, achieve it, work hard at it. And it also sounds like this, Luke 10, teacher, what shall... I do to inherit eternal life. That's what this sounds like. What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. That's what that sounds like. Do we know why Jesus tells this lawyer that if he can do this, he'll actually live? Any idea? Because that's antithetical to everybody who might hear know about the gospel. So why does Jesus say that? Well, because Jesus knows it's impossible. It's impossible. There's a sense of Jesus saying, okay, go for it. It's in the same way that I tell my kids I will give them a million dollars if they'll do my job for me. Or I will tell my kids, I will give you $1,000 if you can kick higher than me. They can't. Nobody in this room can kick higher than me. Okay? It's impossible. Have you seen me kick? So let do it. <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> so to love God and love others... Yes, to love God and love others. Sure, there will be moments when we truly do love from the most purest of moments and we truly do love others from the most purest of hearts. But to love God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, this is known as the most important command given within the Bible. Do you guys realize that? Do we realize that? This right here. Do you know why? Because it's the law we break if we break any other law. This is at the core of every other command and law. So when Jesus is telling a lawyer, love God with all your soul, mind, strength, heart, what he's saying is keep this one perfect. What he's telling this lawyer is you keep this perfect and you will never, ever, ever sin a day in your life. What Jesus is telling this lawyer is if you keep this perfectly, you do not need me. But if you can remember, as Jesus got done saying that, Jesus proceeded to tell a story about a man in a ditch who needs, who needs, who needs. Hopefully, we're starting to pick up on this, that we are not the Samaritan. God, case, you'd be the good Samaritan. No, no, we're not even the priest or the Levite. We are all the needy, beaten, bloody, disregarded, helpless, empty person. Welcome to Collective Church, if this is your first time here. The Good Samaritan is a figure, a figure who looks after a beaten, broken individual. This Good Samaritan's compassion, his compassionate generosity has saved this person from death. No doubt, if this Good Samaritan, or excuse me, if this person would, didn't have his debts paid for by the Samaritan, then he would have woken up going, I can't pay for any of this, and would have been sold into slavery to pay off his debts. So then, this good Samaritan saved him from shame as he was lying there naked and bloody, he saved him from slavery and from death. So to take a syringe and to extract from this parable the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what we have here in essence is a God who comes to broken people, those who can't love perfectly, who is condemned to death, who binds up our wounds, who saves us from death and gives us eternal freedom by paying our eternal debts. This, my friends, is Jesus Christ, the ultimate good Samaritan. And what I love is Jesus just doesn't ask the question, to whom can I be a neighbor? You know what Jesus does? He becomes a neighbor. He becomes a neighbor as a poor man. Jesus just doesn't move into the neighborhood and all of a sudden live on the top floor. Jesus becomes a neighbor in the most needy, helpless, empty of ways don't believe me when he came he was born in a feeding trough at his circumcision his parents could only pay what was required of the of the poorest of poor christ even saying the words to other people foxes have holes birds of the air have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head that is poverty he spent his life borrowing boats. At the end of his life he rode into Jerusalem on what? A borrowed donkey. He spent his last evening in a borrowed room, and when he was being tortured, soldier ca- soldiers cast lots for his last possession, his robe. He literally had nothing left. And when he was died, when he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. Knowing that, how do we feel that we could ever look at the helpless or the empty or the needy or the impoverished the same way again? Not only was Jesus Christ actually poor, but get this, and this should melt our noodles. Jesus takes it a notch further, and this is where Christ penetrates the gospel into our hearts. Not for guilt, but for gratitude. Not for shame, but to bless us, for our blessing. And I want to allow these words to hit us like a freight train. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Christ identifies with every needy, empty, and helpless by saying, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. There is a uh, terrifying, heart-wrenching account told from one of the Nazi death camps where a prisoner had escaped and in retaliation, the Nazis took a child, a young boy, And what they did is they they hung him publicly. They hung him publicly and they made every man, every Hebrew Jewish man, woman, and child watch. And as the young boy hung there and dangled from that rope, one extremely bitter man cried out, where is your God now? A question which can cause complete mental turnaround. Where is your God? As a child hangs there. And then another man answered, our God is there on that rope. That's where our God is. Whatever so you do to the least of these, you do to me. God in Christ presents an incredible challenge and comfort. He not only cares for those whom society deems as least important, as most expendable, the marginalized, the helpless, the suffering, the weak, the sick, the dying, the lonely, the disabled, the rejected, but he tells all, all of us here, whoever wishes to find Jesus, this is where I'll be. Among the weak, the sick, the dying, the lonely, the disabled, the rejected. Do you see how this is both a comfort and a challenge? This is why Pastor Tim Keller writes in his book, Generous Justice, Jesus taught that a lack, a lack of concern for the poor is not a minor lapse, but reveals that something is seriously wrong with one's spiritual compass, the heart. What Keller's getting at is a possessing heart that is bent towards compassion. This is where we see both in the Good Samaritan and the Ultimate Good Samaritan, verse 33, right? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had What? Compassion. This word in its original meaning, if you want to write this in your Bibles, you can write in your Bibles or in your journals. Compassion means pity from the deepest part of your soul. That's what this word means. So what we, obviously we need compassion for our spouse. We need compassion for our children. But that's very easy, right? That's an easy one, Casey. Thank you. What about compassion for other image bearers? What about every slow driver? as you're flying down the road and he pulls out in front of you, the amount of things that fly out of my mouth, God, forgive me. We have to remember that they are image bearers. God, help us. Compassion for the person who's in front of us at the checkout line who cannot figure out the system. Compassion, how about this? those Those, we get those. But what about compassion for those who have hurt you? Every single one of us, what we have in common is the universal language is we've all been burnt. We've all been hurt. We've all been, you know? What about compassion for those who have betrayed us? Christ sat in the middle of those men and women then and he told them the same thing he tells us now. And listen ever so closely. For all of those who have ever had an abortion, for all of those who have ever been in a victim, who who are addicted, who are furious, who have been abandoned, and who want to quit. For all of those who struggle, the kingdom of God is for you. Blessed are those who have no reason whatsoever to be blessed. Compassion for other image bearers cannot be a guilt-releasing religious duty. Do not go sign up for chrysalis because it's a guilt-free duty type thing that we should just do because your pastors are saying hmm. we will burn out we'll be no good to Chrysalis we we'll be no good to the people around us we will begin to resent the church or even the gospel I think the greatest thing that those needy image bearers have to offer us Christians the vast who I'd say is the vast fortunate this is what every single needy person the empty here's the best thing they can offer us nothing They can't offer us a single thing. And that is perfect. They cannot offer us a single favor. They cannot repay us. There is no transaction with the needy. What this type of sacrificial generosity does, this go-and-do likewise does to us Christians, is it beckons us to inner freedom. It carves into us selflessness, and it breaks down those self-justification blocks. And if you don't believe me, Jesus said this himself. Luke 14, should be on the screen. But when you give a feast, hey, you're gonna throw a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And why? You will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. You will be blessed. God is on your side. I struggled because part of me today wanted to talk a lot about poverty alleviation and talk about different stats, different documentaries, and different things like that. Uh, But I felt the Lord at 2 a.m. this morning just wanted to sort of keep this where this is at. And again, I wish as much as I possibly could that we could talk about all the millions of different ways to help and moral proximity, so on and so forth. We're so grateful for Chrysalis and the incredible work they're doing and to partner alongside. That story of Michael, that is fruit to your account. Do you understand? So we're so grateful for that. But the more I sat with these scriptures the more I felt that what needed to be communicated today regarding poverty alleviation in us as image bearers is igniting, igniting, igniting God-given dignity into the hearts of the poor, empowering them by seeing them, empowering by interacting with them, empowering by loving them to become who God created them to be. Design our divine representations and reflections. See, all efforts from us as a church must transcend the monetary, See, if someone has an immediate need, of course, help. We should, we must. But we as a church have been talking about since January 1st, right, Bryce? Since January 1st, love greatly. And if somebody needs advocacy, love doesn't stay silent or keep a low profile or play it safe. A compassionate love like we've been talking about, what does it do? It acts. This is what Christians do and have done for those around them in need for centuries. I'm going to share this, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. But I love this that we actually have record of when the Roman Emperor Julian was seeking to like repaganize Rome. It's like we got to get it back. He wants to repaganize Rome, but we have a writing from the fourth century with these embittered words about the progress of Christianity because Christianity then was this like like Jumanji stampede as it pulled people away from Romans, Roman gods continually. What was it? Why was there a stampede? Look at this. The emperor tells us. Atheism, that's what he called the Christian faith. Love it. Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So as outsiders now, like then, look at Christians, look at the church who care for the poor, they must, they can't help but question, why? Why are they doing this? Why do they care for the poor as they care for themselves? And not just their poor, but for other pagan poor You see, the more we sit with Christ's closing words, verse 36 of chapter 10 of Luke, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The more I see that Christ's defining of neighbor is anybody who has need of you. That's including our enemies, including those we can't stand, including the stranger. So my invitation today is this in closing. It, it, it's, it's more than just, let's just get involved. We, before we do anything, we must become. And I would say today that we must become poor. Become poor. Pastor, I just bought a brand new car. Hear me out. Become poor. Become spiritually bankrupt. Empty yourself in order to be filled. Know that you are, that I am the beaten, bloodied being in the road. And until we get that, there will be no motivation to help because we will always think, if I, if, I, uh, if I fix myself up, why shouldn't they? But if we become poor, if we can freely choose powerlessness over power, over vulnerability, over defensiveness, and dependency over self-sufficiency, then we'll be able to accept, accept, accept the riches poured out, from Christ on our behalf, we will accept his compassion, we will give to others the way that Christ has given to us. More on that in the next few weeks. We will live our lives as basically, what can we give away? What does it mean to become poor? That, giving our lives away to those in need. Friends, I encourage us today to make that our prayer. Let's make that our prayer. There are going to be people on the sides between these trees. I encourage you. They are incredibly loving people. Go to them for prayer. And if you're thinking at all, I don't need prayer. I don't need help. Prayer is for the weak. Here's what I would say. You're right. You're absolutely right. Blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They know, the people know they're empty and weak and in need of prayer that invitation is to you. And when you're ready, come up to the front to receive communion here on my right and on my left. These are elements in double stacked cups, the bottom, the bread, the top, the drink. What these should tell us as we close is that this was Christ giving everything. See, truly the last thing that he could give was not his robe, but it was his body. He gave everything. So take it eat it, and remember the penetrating words of Christ in verse 37. And Jesus said to them, you go and do likewise. Amen? Let's pray.